lead pastor at Redemption Church Gateway, and I've had the privilege of serving as part of your management team over the last number of years since the church started. And this is an exciting day for Restoration Church because this is a day uh, where you're learning about these new elders that you're going to have. And I just am so excited for the men that God has raised up to provide leadership and shepherding and direction and accountability and oversight. Elders are such a gift to the church. As a lead pastor, I'm blessed by the elders that I have. I know Landon and the other staff there will be blessed uh, by the elders as well. And so I'm just really excited for you. This is, this is a wonderful time for your church. It's a key step as you seek to be a maturing and growing and self-sustaining and self-sufficient church. And so it's just really, really good news. And so I hope you're encouraged by it. And I want to take a moment and just pray for you during this next season. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for the way that you love your church. Thank you that the church is who Christ laid his life down for. And thank you that your desire is that the church would be this outpost of the kingdom of God. And I pray that for restoration. I thank you for the way that broken lives are becoming beautiful. Broken stories are being mended up. And God, I pray that restoration would continue as an outpost of the kingdom of God in Prescott. God, I pray for the church during this new season with elders. And I pray uh, that you would protect these men that you would allow their hearts to be gripped by you and that you would lead the church into strength as they love one another, as they're unified, and as they seek to make much of the name of Jesus. Pray that all in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much. Amen. Uh, for those of you that are new with us this morning, my name is Landon and I'm the, the pastor here at Restoration Church. And Luke Simmons has kind of functioned as the, the chair, if you will, of our, our management team. So we've been a church as of today officially for, for three years, which is, is pretty wild to, to think about. And throughout that whole journey, actually before it, uh, before Restoration Church existed, I would drive down to uh, Chandler Mesa area and stay with Luke and his wife and his three kids in their home. They had a little separate bedroom and I'd go down there multiple times a week and get to learn from Luke and, and their church and get to participate. And then they've played a big role in, in planting this church. And so I'm excited today to share, as, as Luke did, that in the next two weeks, we're in the process of this transition from the six men who have had the oversight and leadership of the church as management team to five plus me, so six new local elders, which is going to be a, a really big and significant gift for us as a church and uh, I shared a couple photos with the, the first gathering I want to share with you, kind of where things were three years ago. So the parking lot there looks a little bit different than it does right now. Um, you see the, the, the dumpster in the back and the trailer, and we were doing all kinds of, of work. And at this time, three years ago, we had just finally finished having a few preview gatherings in the parking lot and in the cold with like a little kid's corral. That was our children's ministry and like 30 people. And so it's pretty amazing to see what God has done in just three years. And if you think about that, it's almost like this iceberg. Um, what is he going to do in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, beyond? That we get to play one role of, but Jesus is the head of the church. And so to think about what he's going to do is something that's really exciting. Um, here's an, another picture of this room uh, about three years ago. And again, it's a different situation in here today with, with voices proclaiming the good news of Jesus together as we, we sing and worship. And, and I think, I don't know if it was this day, it might have been a different time, but these walls weren't up yet, just the, the basic framing. And people came in and wrote on the walls, you can't see it now because it's covered, but prayers for different people in our city, 
for family members, for, for different organizations or businesses or schools here in Prescott three years ago. And it's been pretty an incredible gift to witness so many of those prayers coming true, so many of those wishes and hopes in the name of Jesus being accomplished as Jesus has worked. And so today we're going to do something similar uh, in that, that vein that I'll explain in just a little bit. But before that, uh, we're going to introduce you, kind of present the elders to you in just a minute. I want to take a few minutes, though. I'm sorry if this is your first time with us. You're like, what is going on? Is this some weird cult or weird thing? They're going to talk about these guys. I don't think it's a cult. We are a little bit weird, but I don't think this is weird. Um, I'm going to explain to you kind of some presuppositions about elders, because you might be like, what does that even mean? And then what the responsibilities are for the church, so that you understand, I think, the gift that they actually are. And so Luke is way smarter than me, the guy in that video. And so he came up with this, like, 45-page application the elders at his church had to fill out. And so since Luke's smarter than me, I try to steal as much as I can from Luke. So I took his elder application, added to it a little bit. And so these, these men had quite a bit of work to do to get through this process. And I'm going to read you just two pages of the application um, that I think will be helpful for you to know. So presuppositions for the Restoration Church elder team. First and foremost, and this is what we'll talk about the whole day, Jesus is the senior leader of the church. He builds and sustains it. It is his church. That is the foundation we build on. That is the truth that we continue to journey with and we never move beyond. Having godly, courageous, skilled, and unified leadership is essential to the health of the church. And that's, that's a reason why these elders are going to be such a gift to each of us. Elders are the male leaders of the church who are synonymously called pastors, bishops, and overseers throughout the New Testament. While the various words are used interchangeably, they each refer to a differing aspect of the same role in the same office. Therefore, the elder team will consist of both paid and unpaid elders. <laughs> At this point, I'm the only paid one, so sorry for the rest of you. <laughs> elder is an office, not an identity, and this is very important. A person does not need to be an elder in order to have influence or leadership in the church. There will be many excellent leaders who do not hold the office of elder. Eldership should be a great joy and a life-giving experience. It need not be destructive to a man's spiritual vitality, family, ministry, or quality of life. As the church grows in size and complexity, the structure and function of the elder team will need to experience change and reorganization. The leadership structure of the, structure of the church must be flexible enough to get the right people to the table for any given discussion. Now here's some of the responsibilities of these elders that you'll get to meet in just a second. First is to oversee the congregation. This is the, the biblical model we receive. To guard the church's doctrine, mission, vision, and values, which we're going to spend the next uh, time over the next five weeks discussing. To maintain responsibility for financial integrity for the church through review and approval of top-level budget expenditures. To engage in the long-range planning for facilities. The elders hold the keys of accountability. Should something go amiss with the lead pastor or staff, the elders can step in. Like breaks, they can immediately stop something that shouldn't be happening. They tend to the needs of the flock, regularly attending worship gatherings and being involved in the mainstream flow of church life, from our communities to special events, serving in our kids, all kinds of ministries. They lead, teach, and minister in their sphere of influence, to develop additional leaders within the church. 
They pray regularly for the church. Like priests who go before God on behalf of the people, one of their primary ways to serve the church is through intercession. Praying for the sick as requested. Being on watch for trouble. Individually grounded in the scripture and connected to the spirit so that we know what trouble looks like. Exercising church discipline as needed. Evaluating our own mistakes, because we will make mistakes. And if necessary, taking the steps to correct them. Keeping a finger on the pulse of the congregation. They should know people, love people, and have a sense of what is happening in the lives of the people. Providing wise counsel to the lead pastor and senior staff. Like godly sages, they are able to offer perspective that is easy to miss in the day-to-day of ministry. They live the normal Christian life. We don't ask others to go where we have not gone. And so they model what it looks like for us to be a church following Jesus and the everyday stuff of life together. And they're a crisis team in waiting. They provide the church the security of knowing that if a genuine crisis hits, they're ready. Like firefighters playing cards in the firehouse, they are prepared, connected, and ready if the bell should ring. So that gives you just a a small window into what these elders will be doing, and in all honesty, in prayer and planning have been doing now, is I've been on a journey with each of them for about about six months now, um, through that massive application. I think we read about two or three books together, have had all kinds of conversations, and it's just been a gift to me, as Luke said. Each one of these men um, come with different backgrounds, come with different skill sets and gifts to be given to the church, different leadership styles, and I think the unity of this group that didn't all know each other, most didn't, has been maybe the best blessing. That it's only the name of Jesus that unites a team of people in this uh, type of way. And so I'm very thankful for them. What, what I'm going to do now is introduce you to them. I'm going to have them stand where they are as I introduce them one by one. And then what's going to happen is there's going to be a two-week kind of break. And in two weeks, so on the ninth, we will officially appoint them to this role. If for some reason between now and then you have a question or concern, you can come and, and let me know that. Um, but I don't anticipate anything because uh, it's just been a good journey, and I believe God has called each of these men to be a part of this and to help lead us moving forward. And so first I want to introduce Ben Baker. I don't know if you're right in front of me. I should know that. You always do this. This is Ben, and here's a picture of his family, and his kids look a lot older than they do in that picture. When I saw it, I was, I was thinking it was pretty funny. It's good. Um, where is Aaron? Aaron Lambert, there you are. Here's a picture of Aaron and his wife, Britt, and their three children. Toby Ebarb, this is Toby, and his wife Nancy's with him and their family, and that is not Prescott. Toby looks, he's the fanciest of us at this point. Uh, Ty Myers is standing in the back. I I was thinking I was going to say he has a funny-looking son in the picture, but then I realized you might be thinking about my brother-in-law to the left, so I was only referring to myself. And then Bill Eaton. This is Bill, and then uh, pictured with Santa Claus and his wife, Peggy. (laughs) And so each of these men have been a great gift. As they remain standing, I want to invite Ed Bloom up. Ed uh, taught for us out of the Psalms a few weeks ago. Um, Ed has also been a great gift to me. And I've asked Ed on behalf of the congregation to pray over the elders. And so I'd love if you'd stand with us. Maybe walk over to one of the elders and and place your hands on them or or point a hand in the direction of one of the elders. And we are going to pray as we seek Jesus um, to be the leader of our leaders. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that you've given to this church in these five men. 
We thank you for their molding with Landon, and we pray that you would give them wisdom, give them strength, courage. Pray that your spirit might rest upon them as they recognize that we are sheep, members of the flock, prone to wander, need protection, need feeding, need caring, and need loving. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Ed. Now I want to invite Bill Eaton up. Bill has played a, an especially important role in my life in the last little bit over a year. Um, and I think we, each of the elders would agree, plays a, a very significant role for us uh, on this elder team. And so I've asked Bill now on behalf of the elders to pray for you as the congregation. Father, it's good that we gather together and, and just celebrate all that you have done through restoration and continue to do. And Father, we do, we, thank, we praise you and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that I pray today for, for my brothers and sisters, for all of us here, for myself included. Father, that you would overwhelm us with abundance of your love, that we would know the depths of your love for us revealed in Jesus Christ, that we might love you with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Father, by our heart that we might say as Paul did, that while we've been crucified with Christ Jesus, that's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in us. In the lives we live by faith, we now live by the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. By our minds, Father, that we would dwell on your mercy and your compassion, your grace, your faithfulness, your trustworthiness. Father, that we would see that you would never leave us or forsake us and that you would be our strength and our refuge. And that the love of Christ would flow through us no matter where we might go, to our, to our work environment, to our neighborhoods, to our families, that the love of Christ would be seen by all. Father, strengthen us in every way for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Well, I'm excited for you to get to know uh, these men. Uh, again, they will be a gift. They're leaving now because one of the, see ya, <laughs> one of the, uh, First jobs, actually not one of, the first job they'll kind of have as officially being the overseers and elders and authority of the church is to serve. And so I think there's no greater representation of love and leadership than for leaders to serve as Jesus did. And so we're going to continue to celebrate and spend time together this, this afternoon, carne asada and all kinds of food and bounce houses. And did you see the uh, balloon artist guy? That guy's crazy. Um, and Kimberly made cupcakes, so tell her thank, thank you because she made all of those herself, which is amazing. So we're going to continue to celebrate, um, but they're going to serve your food because I think that's a beautiful picture of what we are called to do as Christ followers, to serve, to be the least, um, to give. And so they're going to model that for us today. I'm going to try to keep my, my, my sermon quick because I'm ready to eat too. So... Um, with that said, one more thing. If you're new with us today, we're going to have a welcome lunch in two weeks on February 9th. Um, and I think, yeah, there we go. If you could RSVP to RSVP at restorationaz.org, that's pretty easy. Just with your name and how many will be attending, it gives us an idea of how many people to feed. Uh, Michael Holliver will be catering it. He makes amazing food. And, and so if you're brand new and you just have questions, you want to know about our, our vision more or what we're about, it's the perfect time to come, ask questions, get to know what we're doing. Or, or maybe... You've been here for a while, but you're ready to get connected or plugged in. That's also a great opportunity for a next step. So two weeks from now, welcome lunch. Uh, we'd love to, to see you there and to feed you. I like eating because Michael makes good food. Okay. 
I lied, which is probably not a great start. I think I've done this two weeks in a row. I said this last week. I, I, I sent an email out to those of you that are on our list. If you're not, let us know. We'd like to include you. And I said, we're going to have a four-week vision series. And I sent that out, and then Nate and I had a meeting on Thursday, and I think the Holy Spirit was speaking, probably through Nate, and we, we kind of made an audible. We're going to have a five-week vision series because I pretty much had the whole sermon ready for today and then felt like we needed to take a couple steps back and cover one thing before we get into the specifics of the vision and the how-to and, and different organizations we're going to partner with and different things we're going to do. There's kind of one fear I have, actually. I think it's a healthy fear. One, one thing I want to be aware of that I want us to really think through and pray about collectively. And so we did away with the sermon I was going to do, and instead we're going to do something different quickly so then we can eat. Here's kind of how I would, I would frame it. I think sometimes we approach Jesus like this. We, we almost have this functional relationship with Jesus where we, we do something like say, hey, Jesus, why don't you come over to my, to my house tonight? I'd love for you to meet my wife and kids. You'll love my wife and you'll love my kids. It'll be great for you to get to know them. And Jesus kind of doesn't say this, but thinks to himself, I already know them and I love them. I know them more than you do, and I love them more than you do, and I don't hear that, but I say, hey, I also invited some friends over, Jesus, come on, follow me, it'll be really good for you to get to know and love my friends, and he goes, I already know and love your friends, and then Jesus sits down in my, 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 my living room on the couch, and we start having a conversation, and I go, Jesus, guess what, you aren't going to believe this, I, I've been getting in this, this circle once a week with these people, and we talk about you. And we actually read this book together, and we have ideas and questions. We even pray, and we have some really good ideas for you, Jesus. It's strategy. We're really good at that here in America. And we've got a seven-step plan. Actually, it's three steps, and we use this alliteration thing, so all three steps will start with the same letter. Always works. And I will do that starting next week, so you can make fun of me then. Jesus, my strategy's good. You're going to love it. See, I have, I have these ideas of, of people that are, I think are going to like you and maybe they'll believe in you. So come follow me. Let's get in the car. I'm going to go introduce you to them. You see what's wrong with this picture? To Jesus, follow me. What's wrong with this picture is I think it's maybe honest. I think it's maybe true. I think we maybe go through our lives and more often than following Jesus where he leads, which might be scary, we say, Jesus, come on, follow me because I think I have some pretty good ideas. And so as Nate and I were, were sitting up in my office and we were collaborating and talking, I think there was this mutual unity in the spirit, like, no, we got to stop. We're going to get to that, because I'm really excited about some of uh, the ideas and vision and where Jesus is taking us as a church family. But before we do that, we have to understand that we never, ever can do anything but join Jesus in what he's already doing. It doesn't matter how generous we are, how gifted, the resources we pour in, the brilliant strategy, whatever it is, it's all completely and utterly meaningless. We're not following Jesus. And in our cultural moment, it's really tempting to try to lead Jesus. In fact, the disciples really struggled with this as well. And so I want to dive into Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. And we're going to see how Jesus establishes the relationship with his first followers. We read this. In verse 1, the, the context is that Jesus has already been teaching. Crowds are, are growing and following him because he, he's doing miracles, and they're starting to wonder if he could be the one, the Messiah. And so we read this. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, 
It's fascinating. That's, that's important. The crowd's pressing in to hear Jesus and to hear God's word. He was standing by Lake Gennesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. There's people doing the everyday stuff of life. They have vocations. They need to feed their families. They have jobs, and that matters. Jesus got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon, who will later be called Peter, replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. Kind of going, hey, Jesus, I've been doing this fishing thing a long time. And my dad did it before me, and I think I know how this works. We actually fished all night, and, and usually that's when the fish bite. They're pretty much done, done biting right now. But if you insist that your word, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Why? Because that's not normal. That's never happened. You don't just get that many fish that your net starts to break. Jesus is showing his power and authority over the whole world, including nature. He fell at Jesus' knees and said, which is kind of funny, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they took. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Do not be afraid, Jesus told them. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. And followed him. Matthew and Mark, in their accounts, Jesus actually says, follow me. And so the, the order, the leader-follower relationship is very clearly established from this moment. What's interesting is from this point on, the disciples are really going to struggle with that relationship. They'll see Jesus perform miracles and teach unlike anything they've ever heard, and they'll argue amongst each other of who will be the greatest in heaven. And they'll say, hey, Jesus, you're supposed to be king. Now's the time. And he'll say, no, actually, I need to die. They're like, what? So they're confused, and they try to lead him because sometimes it seems like Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. Does it ever feel that way in your life? Does it feel like Jesus doesn't know what he's doing? I think I have a better plan. Why are you not in line with my plan, Jesus? It's hard. It's hard to trust them when we don't feel them, when maybe we don't understand. I want to turn to Acts chapter 8 now. We're going to kind of go through a journey and see these themes. In Acts chapter 8, Jesus has lived his life. He's raised people from the dead, given vision to those who were blind, healed those who were paralyzed. He's now been killed. He sacrificed himself, and then he rose from the dead. And his disciples now firmly believe that he is the king, the only God of the universe, that he's been risen for that purpose. And so they're, they're following him. And then we read this in chapter 8. An angel of the Lord spoke to a man named Philip, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And he said this, get up and go south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. Okay, and so Philip is apparently laying down or sitting down. I don't know, maybe he's eating lunch or taking a nap or doing whatever you did then in the middle of the day. I don't know what it was. But Jesus says, get up and go. 
So he listens, he follows, and he's on this, this desert roadway, and he's walking. And it doesn't say this, but I'm kind of putting myself in Philip's shoes because it doesn't seem like he gave him any more um, instructions. It's kind of what life feels like sometimes following Jesus. You're on the road, and no one's there, and it's dusty and dirty, and you go, all right, it seemed like you kind of told me to walk this way. Something going to happen? And he keeps walking, and nothing happens. And you go, Jesus, what's your plan? And then we start to lead because we're not sure. And then this happens. We read in verse 4. Not in verse 4, excuse me. In verse 29. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. He finally sees something. Go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him, this Ethiopian eunuch, reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? Okay, there's a foreign man in this chariot. He's not Jewish. He's Ethiopian, okay? And Philip comes up to him. Why? Because Jesus said this, join me there. Because I've already been working in this man's heart and spirit. He doesn't understand what's going on. Jesus has done the groundwork and laid the foundation. He says, Philip, now it's your turn. You're going to join me in my mission of restoring broken stories to beautiful, but you are not the main character. I am. I've already been here, and I'm working, and you are joining me in this chariot. What we see in this is the Ethiopian is going to get baptized. He's going to believe in the name of Jesus through what Jesus has done, and then Philip joins, and lives are changed. But what we recognize is Jesus was there first, and Philip joins. We move on to the next chapter in Acts, and if you have your Bible, it might be titled The Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9. And at this point, there's this evil, terrible guy named Saul, who, who's literally aided in the murder of the first Christian martyr, and he's got paperwork now, legal paperwork, from, from the, the leaders and officials of the day to go into another city called Damascus and to arrest, persecute, and maybe even kill other Christians, that's his mission, and he's on this pathway, he's on this road, when Jesus himself comes down and speaks to Saul, and he says this in verse 4 of chapter 9 of Acts, falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's confused. Who are you, Lord, he said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. This is critical. He does not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting Christians? That's not what he says. He says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. What does this tell us? That Jesus goes before and with us. That Jesus is already moving and active and shaking and speaking and healing and teaching and restoring. And he calls us to join him where he already is. The next thing that happens, I picture it almost like a, a TV show or movie when the scene needs to change. It's kind of abrupt. And, and all of a sudden we read that the next day there's this man named Ananias. He's a, he's a follower of Jesus. And Jesus comes to him and says, hey, there's a guy named Saul. And, and Ananias kind of freaks out a little bit. Like, yeah, I hope he's not talking about that Saul. He goes, there's a guy named Saul, and I need you to go help him. And, and here's what Ananias says to Jesus in verse 13. Lord, I have heard from many people about this man. 
If you were with us last week, we talked about how on the road to Emmaus, the people Jesus was walking with spoke to Jesus and said, are you the only one in the whole world that doesn't know what's going on right now? And I almost picture that right here. Lord, I've heard from many people. Are you the only one that has not heard about this guy named Saul? I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. With the first disciples, we see Jesus' presence active and working in the midst of the everyday stuff of life, fishing, their vocation. With Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we see Jesus is already active and moving with the foreigner before Philip gets there. And here with Saul, what we see is that Jesus is already active and working with the enemy of the Christians, with the least likely, with the one who's coming to murder and steal. Uh, Earlier, Luke, the author of Acts, says this of Paul. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's that guy that Jesus is already speaking to and softening his heart and moving with. We're going to turn one more chapter to chapter 10. There's a guy named Cornelius. This is what chapter 10, verse 1 says. There was a man in Sistera named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. So he's a, he's a government official, a soldier. He, he's in a high place. He's significant. And we read that he has a vision saying, go find this man named Peter. And so he listens. We, we read about it uh, in verse 5 and 6. Now send man, men, Jesus says, to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So Cornelius listens, sends these men to, to pick up this guy Peter, who he doesn't even know. The next day, Peter has a vision. And in this vision, Peter is told that what he's been taught his whole life, that the Jews and the Gentiles, so the Jewish people and everybody else, should be separated. That there's clean and unclean. And, and their religious system functions around what is clean and unclean. So they were to stay away from the Gentiles and their way of life. But Jesus said, no, that's not right anymore. And as he kind of wakes up from this vision, here's what we read. While Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs and accompany them with no doubts at all because I have sent them. Jesus was in Cornelius' house working and moving. Simultaneously, Jesus is in Peter's home working and moving. And then he sends them to each other and says, join me because through the two of you, more will know my name and my peace and the hope that only comes through Jesus. But it wasn't because Peter was a great leader or a great preacher. It wasn't because uh, Cornelius had a, a great position and authority in the government. Jesus initiated all of this. They joined Jesus. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, come follow me. I got, a, I got a great position in this country. I can do some things for you. Or, or Jesus, have you heard me speak, named Peter? I just spoke to a thousands of people, and actually they heard me in multiple languages. Come on, I, I'm going to do it again. No. They joined Jesus. 
In Acts chapter 16, we read something similar. Now for, for all cities, we read this about uh, Paul's missionary trips. They, Paul and his, the, the people with him on these missionary trips, went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. They were told not to go proclaim the news of Jesus there. When they came to Messiah, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Why? We don't know. But we do know this, that the Spirit, Jesus, knew something about these places that they did not. Why? Because Jesus was already there moving and working, and the time had not come for them to go. He's in cities, moving, working, and leading. So bypassing Messiah, they came down to Tros. During the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him. Paul's not there yet, and this man pleads, cross over to Macedonia and help us. Why? Because Jesus is already there working and moving. And the call for Paul is to come join Jesus and what he's already doing. Are you seeing this theme? So quickly we can say, hey, Jesus, come follow me. We've got some good ideas. We've got some gifted people here. They're going to do a lot for your name and your kingdom. Before long, we're going to have a lot of followers. It's going to be great. Come on. No. Jesus says, you join me. And watch what I have in store. That's the only way this works. One last story in John chapter 21. Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. The disciples believe he is who he said he is. And they're fishing again. They're back to their vocation. They're doing the everyday stuff of life. That's what, that's what Jesus calls us to, is life, real life, and the broken and beautiful, the everyday stuff of it. And so they're fishing again. And as they're fishing, they look out, and they see this weird, crazy guy on the shore yelling, Hey, throw your nets on the other side. Peter's like, what is going on with these crazy people? Everyone's trying to tell me how to do my job. Like, oh, we've been fishing all night. But he's like, well, what the heck, let's try it. And what happens? The nets are overflowing with fish. And so instantly, they know who this crazy man on the beach is. We read about it in verse 7 of chapter 1. Therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, his name is John, he's a fisherman too, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him, for he was stripped, and plunged into the sea. He dives head first, he leaves everything behind, and he goes to Jesus following Look at verses 18 through 22. They've now had breakfast and had a fire. It's all great. And Jesus says this to Peter. I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you go old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. He's counting the cost for Peter. There's going to be a cost to following Jesus though it will be fully worth it. Then he told him, follow me. He said, there's a cost. You have to count it before you follow me because hard times will come. But what? I will be with you always. Because it's Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's nothing you go through in this life. There's no amount of brokenness or hardship. There's no time when Jesus is not with you through it. We have to count the cost. We continue in verse 20. So Peter turned around 
and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. That disciple was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he now looks at John. He said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? He gets distracted. He gets jealous. He goes, is he going to die too? Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. It's that simple. There's going to be all kinds of distractions for us as individuals, with our families, our spouses, and for us as a church. And we're going to go, what about this and that? And we want to do great things. And Jesus, we have some great ideas. Come follow us. He goes, no, 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 no. Count the cost. There will be a cost for all of us to follow the name of Jesus. It'll be wholeheartedly worth it, though. And don't get distracted. Simply follow me. And even in the moments when it seems like I'm not there, I am there. Even when you don't understand the plan, I do, because I am God, and you are not, and I love you, so follow me. That's the message I think we needed to hear. Before we get to vision, we'll get to that. Before we get to strategy and steps and my corny and cheesy alliteration, which we will have next week, join Jesus. See, the reality is that, that Jesus is working in our midst, in our city, in our country, in our world. He's in uh, the, the fries on Miller Valley. He's in the banks across the street and the restaurants and by the courthouse and the square. He's in our school districts. He's in your homes. Jesus is moving and working, and your job is not to create something new. Your job is to see where Jesus is. Like Nate prayed earlier, Jesus, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to feel what you want us to see, hear, and feel, and to join him because he's already working in every part of your life. He's moving. So we want to join Jesus. Luke, the, the pastor on the video earlier from Redemption Gateway, they have this great saying. It's all of life. You wear the shirt sometimes. All of life is all for Jesus. That's beautiful. That's simple. All of life is all for Jesus. So my question for myself, for my family for you, for us as a church, is are you joining Jesus in all things? Or maybe do we compartmentalize them and say, hey, Jesus, let's, let's do this thing in this building. And I have this quiet time. It's really great. I give you like 15, 20, sometimes 30 minutes in the morning. Let's join together then. And then we go, okay, it's time to shut that drawer. On to real life, vocation. Got to meet with these people, government officials, the foreigners, deal with this thing. That's not what Jesus says. All of life. Join Jesus. That's my hope and that's my prayer for us as a church. That we get ourselves out of the way and we say, Jesus, we're following you because you alone are good. He's already in your home. Join him there. He's already in your workplace. Join him there. He's already moving in your relationships. Join him there. He's in your kids' schools. He's in your businesses, your vocations. Join him be a church that never moves beyond joining Jesus. I'm excited to talk next week about specifics of how he's calling us. I think things he's shown the staff and myself and elders and many of you and said, I'm here, come join me. We'll talk about specifics next week. But before that, we have to know we never move beyond joining Jesus. Let's pray.